when I was five years old, my parents decided that they were going to take us to the theaters to see a movie, a movie I was, I was very excited to go and see. It was a movie called The Lion King. And in this movie, it's based on the lives of the animals in, in the plains of Africa, the animals that live in the kingdom of, of the king, Mufasa, the lion. But during the course of the movie, Mufasa's evil brother, Scar, betrays him and takes over. And under the reign of Scar, things start to go south for the animals in, in that kingdom. And for anyone left behind, they're led to, to start despairing. The outcome looks pretty grim. But hope is not lost. Because the true king, Simba, isn't dead. And when Simba returns, hope is restored. As the whole land lies in smoldering ruins, Simba marches up to Pride Rock, and as he gets there, Rafiki the baboon puts his arm over his shoulder, leans in and whispers, It is time. And then Simba goes out to the end of the rock, lets out a, a mighty roar, and everyone lives happily ever after. In our text today, God sends an angel messenger to Mary to tell her it is time. But God's message wasn't just for Mary. It was for the whole world. As the world lies in, in what may look like smoldering ruins, God reaches out to each and every one of us with the message that hope is not lost. The true king is not dead. And he has a plan of salvation for this world. As we look at our message this morning, we'll see that the time for that plan, the time for our salvation, had finally come. Our gospel lesson today started with the words, in the sixth month. And you hear that and you might start wondering, in the sixth month of what? So if you take out your Bibles, if you have your Bible with you, and, and turn to Luke chapter 1, page 1013 in, those, in the red Bibles, if you look at our story today and, and the story before it, you'll see that it follows a, a rather familiar story. A story in which Zechariah the priest receives a visit from the angel Gabriel who tells him he is going to have a son. That story is familiar because we just studied it last week. And now, just six months after that angelic visit to Zechariah, we see the angel Gabriel now appearing to Mary. So let's dive right into this week's lesson. And as we look at it, think back to the lesson from last week. And I think you'll find that there are some similarities, but you'll also see that the stories have their differences as well. We start at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. 
The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. This was no normal occurrence. Here for the second time now in six months, after 500 years without any contact from God, his people received a message from an angel messenger. For 500 years, God had been silent, not speaking to his people. And now not only Mary and Zechariah had received those visits, but Matthew tells us in his gospel that Joseph too had received a visit from Gabriel, the angel, telling him that that this wondrous thing was about to happen. It's clear to us that something huge was about to happen. But just how huge is about to be revealed. When Luke wrote down the words and, and the account of what happened on that day, he gives us a little bit of background information as well. He doesn't just say that this angel came to Mary. He tells us that Mary was engaged to be wed to a man named Joseph. And Joseph, he says, was one of the descendants of King David. Now, it had been a long time, 500 years since the people had heard from God. But it had been even longer, almost 600 years since any of David's descendants had sat on the throne of Israel. The kingly line of David had died out, it seemed. But nevertheless, his descendants live on. And now two of them, a a carpenter named Joseph and a young woman named Mary, who are engaged to be married and, and living in this lowly town of Nazareth, receive visits from the angel messenger of the Almighty God, who has come to tell them it is time. Let's see what the angel has to say. Starting at verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That kingly line, the the descendants of David, that, that dynasty was anything but dead. Here we see that this child that Mary was going to bear would sit on the throne of his father David. The child that the angel Gabriel told her she was going to have. If you think back to last week, the angel Gabriel had told Zechariah that that they were going to have a child too. And it may almost sound like we have the same kind of story going on. But the circumstances are really quite different. Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't conceive a child. And besides that, she was well along in years, the Bible tells us, and probably past the point of childbearing for any woman. It was not normal for John to be born. It was, in fact, a miracle. But the circumstances surrounding the birth of the child we read about today were even less normal. 
it was even more impossible for Mary to have a child because Mary, we see, was a virgin. Yes, it was a miracle for John's birth, but here we have an even greater miracle for the birth of Jesus. That much is similar. There was an impossibility happening here. Both Mary and Zechariah received news that that something impossible was going to happen. That may have been the same, but as we continue reading on, we see that when we find their reactions to this news, the similarities come to a pretty quick end. Even as we see what they say, it might at first seem that that they were like-minded. Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this? And Mary, how will this be? But as we look at what the angel responds, we can see that Zechariah's answer was one of unbelief. He didn't believe the words that God had to say to him, and so the angel chastises him and punishes him with, with that silence he couldn't speak, that divine timeout that we learned about last week. Mary, on the other hand, trusted in the words that the angel had to say to her. She believed them. And so her question is simply, how will this come to happen, this wonderful thing that you have announced to me? There's really no, under, no way that we can understand what it is that was going through Mary's mind at that time. But try, if you will, just for a moment to, to put yourself in her shoes. You're a young woman, probably still a teenager. You're not married. You've never been with a man. And now this angel from God is here telling you that you are going to give birth to a baby boy. And not just any boy. This boy, the angel told you, is going to sit on the throne of David. And he also told you that you are supposed to name your child Jesus. The one who saves this child of yours is the Savior. The time had come for that promised Messiah to enter the world. This child that you are going to bear is the Son of the Most High. This child is God. I'm not sure how I would have reacted to news like that but I have a feeling I wouldn't have been quite as calm and collected as this young lady who simply asked, how? And then we see the angel's answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. To which Mary replies, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And that is perhaps the greatest miracle we've seen so far today. Because Mary's confession isn't normal. It's not what we would expect. Because Mary, just like you and I, just like Zechariah, was a sinful human being. 
And it isn't natural for sinners to call themselves servants of God. In our epistle lesson this morning, we saw and heard Paul's words to the church in Ephesus where he reminded us that by nature, we are dead in our sins. By nature, we are children of wrath. In the book of Genesis, before the account of the flood, God describes humanity as being inclined to do only evil all of the time. And throughout all of scriptures, we're shown again and again that what's normal for humans is to be enemies of God, to be slaves to sin. So how is it that Mary can say she is a servant of the Lord? Is it because Mary, unlike us, wasn't inherently evil? Is it possible that she was actually innately perfect? There are people out there that would tell you just that. And they get that from the verses that we're reading today. In verse 28, we see the angel's words to Mary, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate, which for over a thousand years was the only translation people had access to, has the words, Ave Maria, gratia plena. Hail Mary, full of grace. And Jerome, the guy who made that translation, wasn't necessarily wrong. It can be a suitable translation, but only if we understand his words correctly. Mary was full of grace, but not in the sense of, of anything she had done for herself. Not any merit of her own. Mary wasn't full of grace in the sense of a fountain pouring out grace to the masses. Mary was full of grace in the sense that when God found her, she was an empty vessel. A vessel into which he poured his love, filling her up with his grace. Grace which was hers through faith in that promise of the Messiah. Mary was no different than you or me. She believed the promise of God that he would send a Savior into this world. She had heard Moses and the prophets and she knew that she was a sinner who needed that Savior just as badly as anyone else. Next week, we'll take a look at Mary's song of joy when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, a song in which she confesses, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary knew that that Savior was hers. She had seen the promises in Moses and in the prophets, the promises that God was going to send that Savior. And it was through those promises, through hearing God's word, that the Holy Spirit was working in her heart, filling her up with that grace. It was through the power of the Holy Spirit working in her heart that Mary was enabled to give that humble response, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That's the greatest miracle of all. Through the grace of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your hearts, we are no longer dead, but alive. No longer slaves to sin, but children 
of God. Not evil, but holy. And not children of wrath, but servants of God Most High. And it's all because of grace. The grace through which God sent that baby boy to be the Savior of us all. And the grace through which that baby boy fulfilled God's law perfectly so that he could make the sacrifice for our sins. Mary heard God's promise. His promise to her, you will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. She believed the promise of God and she acted accordingly. But that promise wasn't just for Mary. That promise is for us as well. When the angel Gabriel came to Joseph and told her Mary was going to have this boy, he said, you will give him the name Jesus because he will be the Savior for his people's sins. You are those people. This Savior is for you. So how are you responding to the news? As we react to the Word of God, is our answer more like that of Zechariah or of Mary? So often when we react to God's promises, it's that old sinful nature that wins out. We find ourselves not accepting the, the promises of God, but rather running right back into that slavery to sin from which He's freed us. Like it or not, we find ourselves diving right back into the darkness from which Jesus has rescued us. And so we're in the same boat as the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Romans, What I do is not the good I want to do. No. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. But even through all of that, God continues to love you. Even as our sins continue to pile up and increase, God's grace increases all the more. As sin reigns in this world and everything seems like it's going south, the outlook may be pretty grim. But hope is not lost. Because God is not dead. He is not sleeping. He has not forgotten about this world. From the very moment sin entered into this world, in fact, from even before this world was ever created, God had a plan for our salvation. And on this day, 2,000 years ago, He looked down and He decided, it is time. And so that's why the Scriptures tell us when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under God, to redeem those under law, that they might receive the full rights of sons. God sent Jesus to be born of a woman, to be born of Mary, because He had to be human. He had to be a human so that He would be held accountable to the same law that we are held accountable. He had to so that He could keep it. And so that in keeping it, he could redeem us. That word redeem, the, the whole concept of 
redemption is something that may be a little fuzzy to us today in the 21st century. I think a lot of the times when we hear the word redeem, our first thought is of redeeming a coupon or a lottery ticket or maybe a a stock or a bond. We have that idea in our minds of, of trading something in and getting money for it. But the real sense of the word redeem, the biblical sense of redemption, is buying something back. Regaining possession of something that was already yours for a price. That concept of redemption isn't completely lost today. A a fact I never really appreciated until two summers ago. I was living in downtown Queens, New York City. And if any of you have ever been to New York City, or even if you've been over to downtown Toronto, you know that parking in a major city can be kind of tricky. I made it through almost the entire summer without a hitch, and then one morning I went out to get in my car and it was gone. You see, I had parked in a loading zone and my car had been towed away. So after a nice long walk to the impound lot, I went inside and the lady at the desk handed me this green slip. A slip which tells me that because I messed up, because I broke the law, my car now belonged to the borough of Queens. And if I wanted to get it back, I was going to have to pay the fine, which in this case was $300. We've done much worse than breaking a city parking regulation. We've broken God's law. And as you might imagine, the punishment is also much worse. The punishment for breaking God's law is not $300. It's an eternity of separation from that grace of God. An eternity of suffering in hell. I was able to pay off the $300. I slid my credit card across the desk and the lady stamped my slip. And so now it says on the front, redeemed. I had bought my car back. Purchased it back for myself. Now $300 may seem like a hefty fee, especially just for a minor parking violation. But $300 is doable. And I'm pretty sure most of you could pay off a $300 fine at least with the help of your parents or or maybe some friends. But there is not a single person in this room that can pay off an eternity. In fact, there has only been one person in the history of the entire world that could pay a fine that heavy. That person is the baby that we hear the angel announce to Mary in our message this morning. That person is Jesus Christ. Jesus never once broke God's law. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. And then he paid the price. Not with $300, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood. And not for anything he had done, 
but for every wrong that I have ever done. And for every wrong that you have ever done. Jesus paid the price to buy us back for him. Every time that we've ever gone back to that slavery from sin, running away from the freedom that he's bought us, that's why Jesus died. We are all guilty of breaking God's law. There's a a green slip out there with your name on it. And when you come before the judgment seat of God, Satan is going to be waving that green slip in his face. But when God looks at it, he's going to find it's more than just a green slip. Because right there, stamped across the front, in letters as red as the blood with which it was painted on, it says redeemed. Because Jesus shed that blood to buy us back. To buy us back from sin and Satan. That's the reason for this season. Advent, Christmas, that's what it's all about. Jesus has bought you back. God sent his son into the world to redeem you. He did it because as impossible as it may seem, he loves you, despite anything you may have done. And so now, his promise to you is that your sins have been forgiven. That you have received the full rights of sons and daughters of God. A part of which is the assurance that you have a place in his kingdom. The kingdom which the angel Gabriel told us today will never end. That's God's promise to you and me. We've seen it in his word and the Holy Spirit works through that promise in our hearts. So now join together with Mary in saying, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which transcends all understanding, be with your hearts and minds unto life everlasting. Amen.